0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide, and two-thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed on to the plan, like Namwati Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Momofuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar, relief opportunities for all restaurants.
2: Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief with your hosts, Zara Tangora and Bobby Comforto. I am doing the intro and outro alone today as Bobby and I are keeping our very safe distance from one another. Um, And we have a really great episode for you today that was uh, recorded several weeks ago. So you'll notice that there's no mention of coronavirus uh, or the after effects of it or the current effects of it. and that is because it was recorded a few weeks ago. Um, how you guys doing out there? Are you okay? Are you healthy? Are you safe? Are you feeling sane? Are you triggered? What's going on? Um, we want to hear about it. You can stay in touch with us for write-ins of listener letters about what you're experiencing at this time, and we'd be happy to read them on a special episode that we're putting together about listener letters, um, about what people are going through during this really wild experience uh, in the time of Corona. And if you just want to write us a letter to reach out because you need support and you're scared or you're upset and you do not want it shared publicly, that's also totally fine. All emails can be submitted to processing at heritage radio network.org. Um, we love you and we want to be here for you as best we can, even though we can't be physically here to give you a hug. Um, We want to give you an emotional hug. So today on the show, we have an amazing human, um, author, uh, Lisa Kolb Roland. Uh, Lisa is a really wonderful person. We had a great chat. Her and I, um, met up for a a coffee. We kind of co it, we duly interviewed each other. She interviewed me for her newly launched food blog called the unpeeled journal, um, which has, uh, seasonal recipes, essays, food guides, and women in food profiles. But she's also has a big section which um, heavily relies on uh, food and grief. So that's how we connect it. And it's very symbiotic in that way. And she's really a wonderful, lovely person. Lisa has written for publications like Food 52, The Washington Post, Eater, Modern Loss, Remedy Quarterly, and the Napa Valley Register. Um, She's also appeared on the BBC's Uh, food chain, which is a really great podcast. And uh, yeah, we really loved Lisa. She's a very tender and sweet person. Um, Her story is pretty incredible and uh, very sad, but also very hopeful. And she is a very hopeful and very lovely and very strong person. So it was our pleasure to speak with Lisa and we hope that you enjoy our chat. Thank you. So we're talking to Lisa Kolb Ruland today. How's it going, Lisa?
3: Great, thank you. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure.
2: Yeah, we kind of connected. We were connected by a mutual friend, and we just kind of really hit it off and met yesterday for a coffee, and I was just instantly drawn to you and so excited that you were going to come join us on the show, and your story is really amazing. Your writing is amazing, and I just... We both want to start off by thanking you so much for taking your time and being vulnerable and coming to talk to us.
3: Thank yes, you. Thank you as well. Yeah.
2: So, you are a food writer. Yes. And you've written for The Washington Post, Eater, Modern Loss, uh, Remedy Quarterly. Anything I'm leaving out that. Food 52. Food 52. And Eater. And Eater, yes. Um, so, what is it about food? How did this all start it's- with for you?
3: It's so funny. I just think it's one of those things I always just kind of took for granted, and I actually made my way all the way through being a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I did that for about a year and a half and realized it was just kind of something that I think I just put myself on a path toward without really thinking about if it's really something that I wanted to be. And so I quit being a lawyer and decided to do something that was completely the opposite of that, which is I took myself to California, and I enrolled in the Culinary Institute of America, went to pastry school, wow. mm-hmm. got a pastry degree in the CIA, and then moved back to New York and pastry chef for a couple years, and then um, just kind of evolved into food writing from there. I mm-hmm. think, as you know from being a chef yourself, it's an extremely physically demanding oh, yeah. manual labor-type of job
2: it's so (laughs) intense Bobby knows too I mean Bobby used to own a catering business the love and oven and you know so we're all we're all aware of the extreme Mm -hmm. horrid physicalities.
3: I'm sure we all have burn marks up and down (laughs) our arms yeah (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
2: how did it start though was it was it something in your family that did your family like to cook did you always cook growing up and bake like where did the interest kind of start
3: um my mom was always a great cook growing Mm -hmm. up so she really instilled a lot of that in me and was a great home baker and I just kind of found myself, um, even when I moved to New York, like, which I think is such like a restaurant and takeout culture, mm-hmm. if I was at home, I just, n- it never occurred to me to get takeout. It was always like, oh, well, I'm home, so I'm cooking. So right. I did that um, just really commonly and I just kind of feel like all human beings, I think especially in like a very desky, com- computery world we live in kind of at some on some level have a need for a creative outlet mm-hmm. and I think cooking and baking is that and it's just like a nurturing creative outlet yeah and I just kind of found that to be my my passion yeah
2: is it also the place where you go where you need to kind of like as we like to say on the show kind of take your brain offline
3: oh yeah 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 I I my husband can tell you I like stress bake all the time. It's just like what I do. Like I just I really need to make some cookies right now. <laughs> What's your go-to stress so, baking thing? Um, usually my mom's apple cake recipe and it's actually out of all the like professional pastry chefy things I can make It's her apple cake recipe from her home at class in the (laughs) 70s. Oh, my
1: God. That's amazing. It is
3: delicious. And it's just one of these family favorite recipes. Yeah. And it's just great to whip up. And you can have it for breakfast. You can have it for dessert. And the smell when it's baking, right? Apple cake. There's nothing like an apple dessert when it's in the oven. Oh, my God. So yesterday we were kind of
2: talking about, um, you know, we met and discussed our, com- our commonality in our experiences in grief, although the experiences are extremely different. I think we just bonded through just being able to talk about, you know, mostly I was talking about myself because you were <laughs> asking the questions, but now today um, I'm going to ask
3: you. The tables have turned.
2: The t- how the tables have turned. <laughs> um, but you experienced an extremely significant and uh, unforeseen loss in your life. Um, can we talk about that a little bit? because I think it's also extremely tied to, to food. And your writing since has, is right in line with kind of the, a lot of the questions that we're asking on this show about food and grief and where they intertwine. So can you tell us a little bit about um, how this journey began for you, what your experience is?
3: Yes. So in May of 2014, my husband, my late husband, Eric, was over Memorial Day weekend on a mountain climb on Mount Rainier with a group of mountain climbers and they were doing a fairly dangerous route up Mount Rainier. Um, and I hadn't expected to hear from him while he was on his climb. So there was nothing unusual about that. And then, um, I actually had been helping out a friend who was a wedding cake designer in the morning and I got out of, um, my shift or whatever, helping her, um, make sugar flowers and was walking home and I had a message with a Seattle area code on it and I thought oh it's Eric he's back from his climb and his phone is dead and whatever so I listened to the voicemail and it was the National Park Service saying that he and his group had not returned um, from their climb and that they had set out a search party and helicopter So I called back, and the National Park Service person, by the time I called back, um, they had found a, what is called a debris field, so they could see wreckage of, you know, tents and things. Um, At that point, it was still a rescue mission. And then I was just kind of told, you probably want to fly out here to Seattle, and By the time I got to the airport, it was um, no longer a rescue mission, it was a recovery mission. And he and five other climbers had all died.
4: Oh my goodness. You know,
2: that feeling of you're just, you didn't expect your day to turn out like that. It's Mm -hmm. just so, it's such a, it's just
3: wild. It's just like one of those things. It was almost like, you know, like, that 9-11 day with that Mm -hmm. bluebird sky and you remember exactly Exactly. how the juxtaposition of the nice Mm -hmm. day just hit so much harder like hit so hard I think it was the same thing it was this beautiful day in May and I'll just Mm -hmm. never forget how the breeze felt and how Mm -hmm. the sky looked and it was like Joan Didion says you know life changes in the instant yeah Mm -hmm. life changed in the
4: instant the year Mm -hmm. of magical thinking exactly yeah it's a really powerful book
3: And the
5: concept of trauma, that it's more than we can handle. It's literally too much. Yes.
4: Yeah.
2: So, you know, a lot of people ask the question of when faced with extreme tragedy or hearing mostly stories of other people who have experienced things such like yourself, people always say, how could that be possible? how do you how do you go on you know like what do you I could never do it I wouldn't be able to and you know I've said those things too offhand I could never go on if x y and z happens and I'm I'm assuming maybe you have offhandedly before this as well it's something we throw around a lot how did you go on in that day how did you like what were the steps that happened
3: I remember – it's so funny because I almost felt like I was in this very bizarre autopilot in a way where I was kind of just having this whole out-of-body experience. I remember um, forcing my. I remember distinctly – I have all these kind of like bits and pieces of that day. Mm. I remember getting to Seattle. I don't remember the drive to Mount Rainier National Park, but I remember being in some motel room out there Forcing myself to chew a grape. Right. Because I hadn't eaten Mm, since. You were by yourself? That morning. No, my father flew out with me. Mm -hmm. um, And I remember, I hadn't eaten all day, but I remember thinking I should probably eat something. Yeah. And I remember that feeling of like staring at a grape and forcing myself to chew it. Yeah. And it was just this very strange. This is a terrible analogy, but you know, like if you're drunk sometimes, you have to kind of. Talk yourself into, okay, call the Uber. Yes. Yeah, you're on check oh, everything the slows license down. plate, and you're just trying very hard mm-hmm. to act like a human being. Yes, absolutely.
2: You're like, pretend that nothing's wrong. Yeah. No one will know that I'm drunk or great. You know, yeah, it slows <laughs> yeah. down. Everything slows down. It's mm-hmm. emergency
5: mode. What, no.
2: Is there a psychological kind of term for that or Again, reasoning? It,
5: it's, it's post-traumatic stress. Yeah. And it, it is an out-of-body experience because right. post-traumatic stress is a physical experience that changes your chemistry. Right. And, you know, in a way, parts of your functioning slow down, like your digestion slows down, your everything slows down except for your extremities. So it's preparing for fight or flight. So certainly your brain functioning slows down, so you're really not thinking you're Thinking both quickly and very, very slow at the same right. time. That's We're, so true. With
2: a traumatic loss like that, I mean, you're thrust into an experience that you have no preparation for.
5: Mm-hmm. You
2: know what I mean? And it's interesting because we compare. I think all also another thing we do as you know a, a would you rather type question or whatever. Like, well, that would be the worst way to lose someone, or that would be the worst way to die, or I would never want to have cancer for ten years, or I would never want to lose my partner in an accident you know what I mean and they all have these bizarre terrible pros and cons you know what I mean mm-hmm. like the
5: Well sudden loss versus chronic right like a
2: chronic suffering. loss you get to say goodbye but and so you're prepared in a way you're like this will happen doesn't make the pain of the loss any more manageable or less manageable but there's something about a sudden loss that it's like you don't even like it came
5: out of nowhere it I would imagine more, right? it's more than we can handle that's right. the concept Did you feel like that to
3: you? Yes. It was surreal. Yeah. And just kind of, I I, I kind of couldn't believe it. And even though my rational self believed he died, knew he died, um, I would say, I remember also thinking these random things to myself like, oh, but he can't be dead because we have our vacation to Peru book next month. Right. He can't be dead because I already bought all the food I was going to make for his welcome home dinner.
5: Right. The disbelief.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And it was just, oh, my God, it was awful. And I, you know, I just I remember walking back into my apartment for the first time, coming back, and he wasn't going to be in it anymore. And that was the first time. And it, it was very, there are just so many small things. And that's the one thing that I really, I learned a lot of things. But one of the things I learned was that the small things are everything. Hmm. And it became all about his dirty laundry that was still in the hamper and just his little ways. And that's the stuff that really hit me the hardest. Yeah.
2: All the things that are kind of, I would imagine, like living on without him. Like the dirty laundry that he'll, you know what I mean? And Mm. and the food in the fridge that wasn't eaten. It's like these pieces that are oddly living on without the person it just stopped
3: yeah it was just so odd and he oh i remember walking in and i haven't talked about this much but he had just gotten a year-long fellowship through his job to live in london and we were going to move to london and he had told me over the phone that he had gotten it and we would celebrate when we got back together and when i walked into the apartment i realized he had left me because i had been the Jersey Shore for Memorial Day while he had flown out there and when I walked in he had left me a card just saying how excited he was that we were going abroad together and when I got that he was already dead Mm. and so it was just very surreal and they never Mm. recovered his body he's still Mm. there and so I never I think there's something to that too like not having the memorial service and that like it was just like poof Mm -hmm. You know? that's something that happened to yeah. 9-11 I don't know if yeah. Sarah told you but I had worked with 9-11 families for about 4
5: years and um, it made it very hard because there's the concrete thing the, yeah. the rituals that we create in seeing the body as hard as it is and somebody just told me today they go to the cemetery because they know that that's where the body is and so whatever it is there's something about not finding the body that makes it even more unreal so how did you deal with that the fact that he wasn't recovered I
3: mean did you have a memorial service or how did you yeah I mean we had a memorial service mm. for him and it was at a country club and mm. you know there was no grave yeah. to go to there was a very nice memorial service and a slideshow yeah. and yeah then it was just kind of over yeah and but then it's like it kind of hit me all over again after the memorial service. And I think that that's something that happens. It's like it hits you at first when they first die. Mm-hmm. And then it hits a second time. out. And then you're kind of swept into this whole period of memorial service, letting people know, kind mm-hmm. of whirlwind. Sure. Yes. And then that all ends. And then you're just left to the rest of your life. Right. And then it hits in a second way. Right. And I would say just as hard. Yeah. Yeah. And part of that has to do with the disbelief,
5: particularly in sudden loss. And in a way, it's like a fog or a numbness that protects us. Thank goodness it's there, because if we had to take in the whole reality once, we would be decimated.
3: We couldn't handle it. That's very true. Because I do think that I I look back, I was like, how was I able to get on the phone with pe- like these people and make arrangements? Right. You know, it's just. Yeah. But I think you're right. We just kind of this kind of instinct takes over. This functioning instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, And then when that adrenaline or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. I don't even know, kind of drains. Mm -hmm. You're right. I think it it allows that second wave to just kind of hit. Right. I
2: mean, it's a focus, right? It's something you can focus on. And also, you know, in the immediate... In the, in the wake of this kind of thing happening, you are you don't tend to be at work and you don't tend to have other things that you're focusing your energy on. So focusing on planning a funeral, a memorial service or some things like that, there's like, okay, this task and this task and then this task and then the tasks are done. And, it, and while, I mean, for me, at least when my, my father passed away, I was the only one to kind of deal with his stuff. And I remember being so angry at the tasks and even for, you know, two years after being angry at the tasks at the, the closing the estate and oh, yeah. the papers and looking and getting things in the mail. And a friend of mine said at the time, cause I was venting to him about it and he hadn't been through a loss. So I was inclined to be annoyed at the statement, like from the get go, but I actually ended up like really uh, connecting with it. He was like, yes, but when the tasks are done, then they're going to be over. And in some way you're probably going to wish you had them back. And I was like, oh, my first instinct was to be like, fuck you. You don't know what this feels like. I do not want these tasks back. But when they were done, you're, I mean, I can relate to what you're saying in that, like, it sinks in in a different way. And you're like, oh, I don't have this focus specifically anymore.
3: Yeah, it, like, suspends time in a way. Yes, it does. And then when that's over, it just kind of like, oh, wait, I still have to live my life now? Yeah. Like, this It's, is- it's also the
5: things you hold on to. Like, you know, we want to hold on to some things. We, we have to let go of many things. i almost as a live person, but there's so many things we want to hold on to. So when you talked about the dirty laundry, yeah. I don't know how long you kept that around. But, you know, some people really hold on to things, the the toothbrush and um, the things that were part of their life. You know, and at some point we, we begin to let go of those. But what are some
3: things that you have held on to these years? Um, I have... A few items of his clothing that I keep in my closet mm-hmm. still. Um, one thing that I have, because um, it's all I have of him physically. I don't know if this sounds pathetic, not but in the least, whatever um, it is, it's <laughs> not <nice. laughs> of course not. <laughs> um, so, um, when I got back to my apartment for the same for the first time after he had died, um, I knew there was never going. The likelihood of re- them recovering the bodies was very little so as far as I knew I had nothing he was gone so I went around my apartment like a forensics unit just trying to find like individual like hairs yeah so I pulled like a few hairs Mm -hmm. off of his pillowcase and like one off Mm -hmm. of his towel and I think I found like seven or eight hairs like and he had just short blonde hair so it's not much but I put it um in a special little envelope and um that's all I, I have of him mm. physically, but um, yeah. I, I keep that very close. and mm-hmm. um, Sacred. Yeah. Sacred I have, hairs. I have voicemails. And, yeah. mm-hmm. I listen to them sometimes to hear his voice.
5: And, yeah. You know, our, I don't know if you remember this story, but when you were young, you were about uh, eight years old, and we went at, over to our friend's house, Deborah, and it was a fall fest that she was having, and she had this thing set up in the backyard. It was at night. And you had to walk up the stairs, and then there's a platform, and then there was a rope, and you had to hold the rope and like pff, jump into the unknown, yeah. and there was mattresses underneath. So I remember being very scared to do that, and I walked up the stairs because you you know you wanted to go up, so I I was terrified, but I walked up, and I held onto the rope, and I let go, and at the top of my lungs I screamed, "What can I hold onto so I can let go?" Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it's like, you know, there's so much letting go and loss. And for you, you, you tried so hard. You looked around the house to find anything you could hold on to because you had so much letting go to do. That's such a tender story. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it really is.
4: Mm. Um. <laughs> 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 well no but
3: that's it it's like it comes back to that thing about like the little things are everything yes, you yeah. know and the things that i wanted of his had no real material value necessarily it yeah. wasn't like a watch it wasn't right. things like that it was like his hair or like yeah. a ratty t-shirt that just was him to me of and course. that's the stuff i of think mm-hmm. absolutely you
2: know. So you wrote a couple of pieces that I loved and I totally devoured and read over again a couple of times and was sobbing while reading, not just like a little like tiny tear. I was like sobbing, (laughs) reading them. It's very touching and you're a great writer. Thank you. Um, So you wrote something called A Widow's Food Guide to Grief. It was in the Washington Post in 2018 and it detailed the stages of grief and how one might realistically feel at any given moment in relation to food. Um, so I thought it really bravely confronted loneliness, which is, I think, in some way assumed that if you are widowed or if, you know, you're if somebody important to you dies, particularly being widowed, though, because it's your partner, I think it's assumed that loneliness is there hovering. But I think that, like, to really... I don't know, admit real loneliness and talk about real loneliness is something that people are really afraid of, you know? And so I really appreciated how you confronted talking about loneliness in this piece. And I was just wondering if you could kind of talk us through the piece a little bit, because it kind of talked about, like, your appetite and how you can how you can feel at any given moment realistically Uh, talked about food people might bring you which I
3: think is something that's interesting so can you talk to us about that piece a little bit yeah so I just um, one thing I was just so conscious of I think because I had been a full time food writer at the time that he died was how my relationship with food something that was so joyful and nourishing to me just became so unimportant Mm. so meaningless and just so blank I you know, yeah. and 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 that's something that I just kept striking me over and over again, and I think that also um, coming back, Bobby, to something you had mentioned earlier, just the physicality of grief, mm. um, just the loss of appetite, mm-hmm. yeah, um, just how much it's like being mm. physically ill in yeah. so many ways, which mm. I had no idea grief was so physical, mm. but it is. Um, and so, yeah, one thing I just wanted, several things. One is like, yeah, the loneliness factor. It is hard to eat across from the empty chair. Mm. And one thing that I did was I started sitting in his chair. Wow. So that I could look across at my empty one Mm. instead of his.
4: Mm -hmm. What a power move. And yeah, well, no, I
3: should say that's, when I wasn't eating in front of the television. Okay. Because that was definitely, <laughs> yeah. like, my biggest crutch of all. But um, yeah. that's one small thing. I just was, like, I just didn't want to look across at his empty seat. Yeah. So it was, like, a fiction. But in a way, it was, like, mm-hmm. played a little mental trick on me to help. Mental um, tricks are important. They really are, yeah. you know? Um. um Yeah, and, of course, like, just touching also on, like, people want to bring food and mm. i think that is so wonderful and so important um i don't for me i think early on like a heavy cheesy casserole wasn't mm-hmm. so much it right it was like broth right chicken rice simple right stuff you want to eat when you're sick oh, totally well
2: mm. we were talking about the year of magical thinking before but when joan didion talks about that the kanji, yeah yeah. We we were actually just speaking to someone earlier who lost uh, a child and mm-hmm. she was talking about how for her, when people would bring food, cause she was a cook and she still is a cook and cooking was her way of caring for her family. Um, she was like, get this, these casseroles out of here. We don't, I don't want any more of this stuff. And it felt like a nuisance and a hassle and like too much. Did you feel like
3: that at all with people bringing food to you? Um, I experienced that less than I think other people do because I think people who are, like, more part of, like, a church or something like that Mm -hmm. or, like, have suburban lifestyles get more of that kind of casserole-y thing. Um, So for me, it wasn't as noticeable, but I also know people who have gone through that and it just is, like... It's, I think it has been very complex, though, for them, because it's yeah. like, on one hand, they're so grateful. On the other hand, I don't really want, like, a taco pie. Of and course. So, But how do you say Yeah. no? You, totally. Know,
5: but so you were living alone. I was. And that was part of it. So what were some things that people brought you that you remember or things they did for
3: you that helped you? Um, I remember the first meal I was really able to eat was just chicken and rice my sister made for me just very simple um and I remember eating it and being just like this is delicious (laughs) and she's like oh it's just something silly but it's just exactly what I wanted to eat um the girls at food 52 sent me a jar of granola Mm. and it was so good and that was great too because it was something that just like simple I can have a little of or a lot of but just a little bit different at the same time that remember that being really good
2: and And no expiration too so there's no pressure to be like I have to eat this or there's
3: no instructions yeah yeah and like a cheese plate was good because that's something just like you can pick at like fruit and cheese like little things because I think your appetite can shrink down to the size of like a Mm -hmm. walnut right so just things that you can pick at
2: yeah yeah, you were asking me that question earlier today about like people bringing things, and it's so yeah. complicated because I think it's like the one of the only ways that people know how to cope with grief. You know when what I mean? They're
3: just desperate to do something. Yeah. They so, want to do something, right? Yeah. And yeah. so, and most, cooking
2: is love, right? And so most people don't feel equipped to be like, well, I'll sit down with you and really talk this through for an hour, <laughs> and yeah. we can, you know, you can like blow your nose on my shirt. And <laughs> I think that people don't want know about like they don't want to clean your house, right? So there's like a, a... It's kind of the bar for what people do when somebody is going through a terrible time and experiencing extreme and outside grief. outside
5: of your intimate circle, because your intimate circle can... Right, your intimate circle you know, can, can change want your things, sheets. Right. But exactly.
2: a person who you kind of know just wants to send yeah. something. And so I don't know. I mean... I feel like even if you throw it in the trash, or you don't eat it, or you give it away, or you put it in your freezer and never look at it again, I don't know. I mean, for you, was the effort was it the effort or the food, or was it sometimes both? I mean, were you ever be able were you ever able to just be thankful for or was it enough just like oh my god, this person brought something, even if it wasn't something you
3: wanted or yeah, no, I, the appreciation was always there. And yeah. I and the appreciation is always there in other contexts, too. Like, we were talking um, before about sometimes when people say the wrong thing. Right. And just learning to be appreciative that they tried and they meant well. Yeah. So that's the most important thing of all. But I also think, like, at the time, like... I don't know like I don't know that I was even as conscious of all that as I should be because I was just so messed up yeah. like a lot of stuff just happened while I was just on some kind of emotional autopilot or crying right. all the time totally. so I don't know like if I even really took in all that was happening around me yeah
5: yeah. It's it's as if a fog descends and how much do we really see in the fog you know we're in the fog we're standing there but we don't really see much yeah and, and there's no context yet for yeah. us to
3: look back on it and yeah.
5: reflect we're just in it Totally.
2: And the fog is a protection. So, you wrote another article that I really liked. Um, it was called uh, The Condolences End Being a Widow Doesn't, also for the Washington Post. That was a couple years earlier, right? 2015. And you talk about um, the loneliness of widowhood in like year two after some of these things like bringing food and checking in every day. Can you talk to us about that? Because I think it is, you know, something that I know that unfortunately I've maybe done myself sometimes or, and I've experienced that on the other end of like, oh, wow, you know, people don't really keep up necessarily. Can you talk to us about
5: that?
3: Yeah. I think that we live in a 24 hour news cycle Mm. where there's the big story and then it's over and then something else happens. And I think that, That's very analogous to kind of a grieving person because I think when the grief is very new and upfront and raw and ugly and there's a funeral going on and all of this stuff happening, it's in everyone's face and they're aware of it and they're participating in it. But then, same thing with the end of the funeral, then that was, it's like, well, that happened already. Mm. And people, I think, resume their lives as they should and they go back to their normal and then you know I I and anyone who has I think lost a close loved one you're just beginning right Right. and so something that happened two weeks or a month ago or even six months ago is to them is still brand new to you and I think because it's not on their front burner anymore um, nobody I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't ever blame anyone for not understanding this because I don't think you can understand unless you've been through it yourself. Um, But I remember just kind of sometimes wondering, where is everybody? I, it just still, just still felt so brand new.
5: Yeah. It reminds me what my friend Kathy did when her husband died. She stood up in front of 300 people were there and she said, please, I need every one of you to think of me and include me in your activities. She said so a month from now, 6 months from now, a year from now, ask me to go to a concert. Ask call me for dinner. Come over and visit. That's the one thing you can help me with. Right now, I'm I'll deal with it. I'm I'm hunkered down, but in the future, that's when I need you.
3: Wow, that was amazing that she had the presence of mind to anticipate that and mm-hmm. to say yeah, something. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like that.
5: You know, the truth is is that Part of what the definition of grief is, is that it's accepting the reality of the loss. And in the beginning, we have that numbness and fog to protect us so we don't have to take it all in at once. But then over time, as the fog lifts and the reality descends, you know, often the second year, you have more reality. This is my life now. Right. So it's a very different feeling. You're no longer in the emergency, you're in your everyday life, and you're realizing that... Your beloved is not with you and you're living like your life like,
2: without them.
3: Oh, I'm still doing this? Yeah. yeah. Like I'm I'm still Yeah. Living. He's still dead.
2: I, I was just gonna say that I had someone who lost a very significant person to them and the way they would describe it is like, I can't believe that you're still dead. Like yeah. this it's so weird. And I, I feel that even with my thinking about my dad sometimes I'm like, Are you really still dead? Like I really want to tell you this thing. I cannot believe this is still yeah. happening. Like yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird Because again, it's not
5: progressive. It's not as if the reality progressively, we get it, we get it, we get it. It's not, it's back and forth and back and forth. And I get it and I forget and I get it and yeah. I forget. And you can wake up, I'm sure you woke up in the morning and well, where, where
3: is he? How could you not be here?
2: Yeah. It's-
3: and you get ambushed by it in the weirdest mm-hmm. ways and at the smallest times. It's not always on the big significant days that you think you realize the loss. It can just be kind of out of nowhere and yeah. it just can hit. And I, they just keep being dead. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so hard. It's fucked up. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh-huh. It's terrible. That's how it is. It's yeah, fucked like, up. Yeah. There's really no other way to yeah. describe it. Yeah. When did you feel like you got the... When did you get back into the kitchen after this experience? Hmm. Uh, yeah.
3: It's funny. I got back into the kitchen probably a couple months, maybe a month afterward, Um, I moved in with my sister and her family for a time and at some point just decided, okay, I need to try to cook one night a week. You know, I can't just be sitting here like a blob. Um, But I remember one thing that happened was I would just mess everything up. Uh, Really? Oh, my God. I would Uh just, I mean, things that were easy for me before, I would burn. I would forget ingredients like everything would just turn out wrong i uh, mean discombobulated yeah is there anything you remember specifically that oh god yeah um well let's see i forgot to put like dumb things like forgetting to put mayonnaise and egg salad and wondering oh. like wondering like why is this so pasty and dry <laughs> like i yeah. felt like stupid but um Forgetting to set a timer on a roast chicken and mm-hmm. then like an hour and a half later it's like smoking out the kitchen. Right. So just this forgetfulness yeah. things like I used to call it widow brain.
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
3: Yes. And I think it also goes back to the, just the physical symptoms yes, of sure. grief and I I read something about this and Bobby you might be able to speak to this um about how like that's an actual thing that happens like the blood redirects to other parts of your brain right. responsible yes. for right. survival yes so you're not being able to make these like like your memory isn't as good and, right you know well you know, it's a
5: flooding of stress hormones mm-hmm. that happens in an emergency and the interesting thing is is that the animal kingdom after they have an emergency they start shaking violently right and they shake out the stress hormones like a dog when, when it, it shakes don't. exactly yeah. they yeah. after an experience they shake You know, a deer in the wild and a tiger's just gone by and they they were in a freeze mode and then all of a sudden the tiger leaves and they start shaking violently and the stress hormones leave their body. But that doesn't happen for us. The stress hormones hang out for a really long time, for a year or more, and it changes our chemistry. And, you know, trauma is in the foreground. Whether you're not thinking about it or not, 24 hours a day that trauma is with you. So therefore, the little things that you had to cook a chicken, that's in the background that's way back there. So it's very, it makes sense that you forget things.
2: I was wondering about it in the sense of that. I was wondering about it. Like, does joy in some way keep you alert? Like, does your sense of joy, like connect to your sense of purpose, connect to your sense of timing Mm. for things that you know how to do, like put eggs out, like in, you know what I mean? Is there Um, something about like the absence of joy mm. being like, just forgetful? Because what does it matter in some sense? If the chicken burns, I don't even care. Is right.
3: that? Make oh, there sense? was definitely yes. Okay, yeah. So and I think that you're making a really important point. So even though I started cooking again, yeah. and granted, messing up at all of it, you're right. I wasn't enjoying it. I was yeah. doing it because I felt like it was something I should do, right? Not because I really wanted to do it again. And I also think too, like meals can be very emotionally fraught. Uh. Going <laughs> back to what you were talking about, because to cook a meal for one is to acknowledge. That you're cooking for one now. Exactly. Yeah. Um, So I think there's a tendency to, like, want to avoid any more triggers than you have to. Right.
2: And, like, you know, even... Oh, I'm sorry to cut you off. Go ahead.
3: No, because also, um, you know, just talking about food, I remember... I don't know if... I think this is kind of a common thing, how, like, right when someone dies, you'll be driving around and just wondering, how are all these people going to restaurants don't they know that like my husband died right it's just kind of this weird thing and I remember having Mm -hmm. been writing all these food articles about I don't know I'd just written something for like food 52 about like how to keep your fresh herbs fresh longer and I just remember that was like fun for me to write and I was like yeah like people don't want to have swampy parsley after two days. But I remember after he died being like, that's so stupid. Who cares Mm -hmm. about cilantro? Only death matters now. (laughs) I know, totally. (laughs) The priority shift.
5: Absolutely. And, And most people say they really don't want to be alive. It doesn't really, it's not that they want to kill themselves. They just, life doesn't matter the same way. So they're kind of walking around in a place where things don't matter. So we talk about a lot about living as if. And what that means is I have to live as if I care. Because if I live as if I feel, I will go so off track. You know, not only will my parsley, you know, mold, but my whole life, basically, will be off track. So we learn to live as if it matters to make a meal. Live as if it matters to go to a restaurant or call a friend, even though you don't want to.
3: Does that make sense? I wish someone had told me that. few years ago and that makes so much sense Mm. and it's that's so empowering Mm. of a statement to say. I remember I had a grief counselor who told me to indulge my grief. She's like, you fight depression, but you indulge grief. Mm. And I interpreted that as meaning that if I just wanted if it was, you know, 70 degrees and sunny outside on a beautiful day but I wanted us to just watch, binge watch The Sopranos in my jammies Yeah, then that was good for me that I should do that because I'm indulging my grief right. but looking back on it now I think mm. that was wrong it's not wrong
5: it's both it's the duality mm. you're doing both at the same time you know we talk a lot about giving space to grief and I think that's what your grief counselor was trying to tell you you have to give it space even though it's so uncomfortable but the duality is at the same time we try to Stay somewhat on track, you know, above the above the the water, because um, particularly with a spouse, and I'll tell you why, because there's nobody else to take care of, you know, it's just you, and that's one of the hard things that you know, with the death of a child or the death of a parent, you still have a family that's connecting with you, and you, you said that you moved in with your sister. So how did that change things when you moved in with your sister and her family?
3: Well, you know, it's so interesting, isn't it? Don't you find that sometimes it's easier to care for other people than it is to care for ourselves? A
2: hundred percent.
3: Absolutely. Why is
2: that? (laughs) Well, I think because to actually care for yourself is in some way in those times is like giving up your sad, it's like giving up little pieces of your sadness. And I think your sadness keeps you bound to the thing that you lost. I think. You know, I mean, that's just in personal. And, and sometimes experience.
5: we learn that in our own families. We learn self-negating for different reasons in our own families too.
2: Right, but in a time yeah. in a time of grief, this is just my opinion, but I feel like, okay, I get out of bed today, I take a shower, and I eat spaghetti, and I see my friends. You know, and like that is self-care. That's taking care of yourself. That's doing some positive things for yourself. And in that moment, you forget a little bit, just for a little bit. Not forget, but you put you put it back you know, into another compartment. And when you're really in pain and you're really grieving someone's loss, you kind of don't want to do that because you lose, you lose a little bit of it. And you know, like the only thing you kind of have to hold on to is, is pain for a while. So I think that's why, I don't know. What do you, what do you think?
3: I think that's true. I think there's something to the idea of feeling it so acutely that, yeah, there is a connection there. But it's so interesting, too, because I remember, I, so I went, um, there's this yoga place in Lenox called Kripalu. Oh,
2: yeah. Yeah. We, know, we both know it well. We've both been many times. Oh.
3: Yeah. Love it. Yeah. So I went to this um, like grief weekend thing, and David Kessler was speaking mm-hmm. at it, mm-hmm. and he specifically addressed that. It was so interesting. And there was a woman who had lost her child, and she was talking about how she feels like, I mean, this was had been maybe eight or ten years, and I think she had complicated grief. But she was talking about how she couldn't let go of the pain because if she felt like if she let go of the pain, she was letting go of her daughter,
4: mm-hmm.
3: and it was like a bond, like the the bond she yes. had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And but he was who what?
5: David lost a son.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. But what David Kessler said was tell me a story tell me a happy story and she told this story about how they baked cookies together and after the story ended he asked her how did you feel when you were telling that story so he felt happy did you did you f- remember that could you see her in your mind's eye yes 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 and he said the whole time you were telling that story you were smiling mm-hmm. and I wanted to point that out to you because you don't need to cry to feel connected Wow. You just smiled and felt connected.
2: That's so, that is so powerful. Yes, yeah. It's extremely powerful. Okay, uh, we're going to take a really quick break. And when we come back, we're going to have
4: some more chats with
2: Lisa. Okay.
4: As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the way that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org slash COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to first-hand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how the crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support. More than ever, to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org/slash/donate. And we're back. Hi. Hi. Nice to see you again.
2: <laughs> Hi, Bobby. Hi, Sas. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Hi. So I wanted to talk a little bit about another piece that you wrote: um, The Bread I Still Can't Bake. Um, I, that was of all your work that I read that made me really emotional. That was the biggest one. And you described so beautifully how you and your, uh, you and your husband, Eric used to make beautiful breakfasts for one another. And, um, just, you mentioned so many like sweet little things. It was just very touching. Um, and then you spoke about a bread, I believe a molasses, whole wheat bread that you Mm -hmm. still can't bring yourself to make. And. I really appreciated it in the article, how you were not judgment judgmental of yourself about it. And it was like almost a, you were celebrating the fact that you weren't going to make it as like a positive thing and that you didn't need to make it. Can you talk to us about that a little bit? Because I thought it was such like a nice, it was a gift to give yourself in a way of not pressuring yourself and not judging yourself.
3: Yeah. Um, I think that that, took me a while to get to that place where I was able to not judge myself. I think that it's very easy to actually think that you're failing at grief because you're not doing it well enough or fast enough, or you're still not as pulled together as you thought you would be after a year. or... Or others
5: expect you to be.
3: Right. Exactly. And I think that it's really easy to put a pressure on yourself um, for something that's really just made up, you, have, you know, there's no, there's no right or wrong. It just yeah. grief is what it is. Um, so yeah, there's this one bread that I used to make. Just we kind of just always had it around, and it's this great um, recipe, and we'd have it every morning, toasted with our eggs and fruit and avocado. We we like kind of just did a big old breakfast every single day, and um, I still have not made that bread and I've thought about it and I remember thinking to myself I was like it really is tasty I really like it I should just make myself do this so that I can almost like check that box of like
4: yeah.
3: doing it and then I just kind of was like why mm-hmm. yeah
4: like
3: why do I have to put myself through that if I don't want to it's already been hard enough so I still haven't made it it's still delicious, but, um, I, yeah, just accepting that some things might never be okay again.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I thought that was really important. And I think, you know, we talk about, um, how you are, uh, pe- people who experience extreme loss and grief are just forever changed, you know? And actually I think people who experience small losses and grief are the little T's changed. and
5: the big teas. Yeah. Yeah. Little the, traumas, little big traumas, and traumas,
2: big traumas, but, um, I think it was a really significant way of just being kind to yourself and, tr- and not putting a pressure on yourself because yeah, if you don't, if you don't need to make it again and you don't want to make it again, you won't. And if you want to make it again someday, you will. And I think it, it speaks volumes beyond the bread. I think it speaks yeah. to like what we were talking about, about compassion towards yourself. Of if you don't want to get out of bed and get up, you don't have to, but you know, but it, it it's a small it's a sm- it's it's one way of being in that feeling. It's not whole like all, like all encompassing where you're just like I'm not ever going to cook again. Not to say that that would be wrong if someone could never cook again,
5: but you well, know it reminds me of the small things you were talking about. It sounds like that molasses whole wheat bread is a small thing that was such a big thing, yeah. and that it's sacred to you and Eric, and that right and that that's what and it was and breakfast
3: can yeah. be a very intimate meal you're in your jammy yeah. and you're just yeah. waking up and it's usually just a more private meal yeah I think. but and I think that's something too I think it's important to remember with grief is that um, you might be looking for the day down the road where you can get back to normal mm-hmm. and just realizing you're never going back there that I can promise you but mm-hmm. I think I can also promise from my own experience that you will be okay again in a different way yeah
2: mm-hmm so that kind of ties into kind of one of the last questions I was going to ask you. Um, and maybe the answer is the same or maybe it's different, but we always like to ask folks, uh, if you could, if you were facing yourself at that moment, right when you lost your husband or in the couple of days after, and you could give yourself one piece of advice and tell yourself one thing, knowing what you know now about what the journey has been like, what would that
3: be? That's, so interesting that you asked that question because I will say I actually did do that. Right before I walked out of my apartment to go to Newark Airport to catch a flight to Seattle after I found out that he was in the accident, I got out a Sharpie and I wrote on a Post-it note, it will be okay. Mm. And I stuck it on my bathroom mirror Mm. for when I got back Mm. because I knew, I knew what was going to happen and I knew that I would be walking back into that apartment mm-hmm. and he would be dead and so I left that post-it note for myself to see when I got back and somehow I just had to believe that and so I would leave that post-it note for myself all over again <laughs> It'll you still be okay. have it. Mm-hmm. I still, have it. still it, have it and is it yep in a different way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and by okay, I don't mean fixed. Yes. I don't mean that I'm over him, yeah. but I, life has a way of being lived again. That's very
2: beautiful way of putting it. Uh, Lisa, can you tell us a little bit about what you are working on now? Cause I think it's very interesting. It's very in line with what we're thinking
3: about and talking about, and it's so exciting.
2: So can you tell us a little bit about some of the projects you're working
3: on? Yes. So I'm very excited that in addition to just food writing for other, and writing in general for other um, media, I am doing my own website called Unpeeled, and it's just a general cooking Um, and food website, interviewing cool women in food and profiles and things like that, recipes. But also one of the most significant aspects of that is the Food and Grief Project. Um, One thing that really struck me so deeply was not only the ways in which food plays into grief, whether you're trying to bring something to someone, whether you're trying to nourish yourself, Um, just so there's so much to it, whether you have a memory of someone you loved with food, Mm -hmm. there's so much there, but also how underexplored it still is. Mm. And so I really think that that deserves a little more light. And I think that's also something that is so important that you're doing as well through your own experience and your work.
2: Thank you. I mean, I think we always say that kind of the ethos of this show, and I think we share this is that grief is this. Oz-like kind of figure you know and we don't we live in a death denying culture and it's interesting when we talk about how people say the wrong things you know when you're grieving um, it's almost like how could they not like nobody there's no playbook nobody talks about this you why is there a class talking about the most obscure kind of mathematical problems and there's no class in school being like hey everybody dies and some people die too young, and tragically, and here's maybe how you could, here's how you could speak to somebody. You know what I mean? You would think, right? But nobody does. And I think that you know our goal is to disarm some of that and open up this conversation. I know you're trying to do the same thing, and I, I'm so excited to see what you build and what you create because I know it's going to be amazing because you're amazing. Thank you. <laughs> yeah.
3: Right back at you. Thanks. And I think this is just like a really special thing that deserves to get talked about. And the more we talk about it, the less I think of a stigma, it'll have a tattoo and then less uncomfortable scary. Will, will be. And less yeah. scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Right. Because, you know, it's scary to be in grief and it's scary to be in experiencing loss. And it's scary to, in a very different way, to be someone who is trying to be there for someone who's in grief and experiencing mm-hmm. loss. And honestly, like, you know, and I, in no way mean to call you out mom, but you're the most experienced person when it comes to bereavement that I know, and when my dad passed away and I felt I was experiencing a lot of depression and I was really grieving, I know that you, as I someone with the be most better. experience, you wanted. And, and if well, you're you, a mother too. Right. So I think just the, like, you know, the more we can all, and every one of us, even, even you, everybody yes. has so much to learn about that because it is, it is being there for a grieving person is like an act of self-discovery and figuring out how to be comfortable and brave at that. So there's just so much to talk about.
5: You know, one other point, the truth is, in a way, everybody is so unique what they bring to grief. You know, part of I'm a grief therapist, which is different than a grief counselor. And that means that I'm not just providing grief education, but I'm helping people see how they uniquely are viewing their grief because we all have a different lens of perception that comes out of our history. Mm. So we all view grief differently depending on our, our history of losses, our personality, mm. um, our supports. There many different reasons why. So I think it's helpful to understand how we individually view it. So therefore, people need different things in grief. I thought the story about David Kessler was very interesting because we all need something different. Totally. We all need to sometimes have the perspective of how we're viewing it, why we're viewing it that way, and what might help in our perception.
4: Yeah.
2: Well, this was an amazing talk, and um, we are so honored and privileged and just so thankful that you decided to be vulnerable enough to share your story and your writing is beautiful and yes. where can we find where can folks find your writing now like on social media or on your current website or your future website please let let us everybody know where to find you
3: yeah so i have um my website is unpeeledjournal.com and if you go to unpeeledjournal.com Um, You can find my bio links to writing as well as the Food and Grief Project in its entirety. And I also would love to have people write in and provide their own submissions on food and grief memories or a recipe that ties them to someone they've loved and lost. Um, So I'm really excited to see where it goes. And I think it's going to be someplace really special. Yeah, we do too. We're so excited.
5: And we're kindred spirits. So I hope that maybe we can connect in some other way in the future. Yeah. We're on the same path here. It's very, I it's very exciting.
3: Yeah, I know. You're yes. welcome back to the studio anytime <laughs> you want to come. We'd love to have. You. I think we should all cook together. Sometime. Oh my god, <sighs> That'd be fun. Let's Say no ex- more. Let's I'm go right accepting now. that invitation. <laughs> that sounds great. No, that would
2: be great. That would be really awesome. Dad. Yeah, we'd love, we have to. We'll have to talk about what to make, and we'll, talk.
3: we'll yeah, we'll whip up something good.
2: Fun. Thanks for having us. And it was so amazing to meet you. And I'm excited
4: to have a new friend. Yes, me too.
3: Thank <laughs> you. And I'm just so honored to be here. And I just think what you're doing is just hugely important and meaningful. And I think people are going to uh, hear things that speak to them and maybe just give them yes. just that something that really yeah. clicks. And cool. just so that's a really powerful thing. Thank and you. as we always
5: say on the show, to quote Viktor Frankl, survival is a community event. Yes. So we need each other to heal.
2: Well, you guys, thanks so much. It was great talking to you,
5: Lisa. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa.
2: Hey, guys. Um, hope that you enjoyed our chat with Lisa. Um, I was so touched by so many of the things that Lisa shared with us, particularly what one that stands out was the story that she told about gathering her husband's, uh, her late husband's hair and saving it. And it was just, that brought me to tears during the episode. It brought me to tears thinking about it afterwards. And uh, yeah, Lisa is a really uh, just such an incredible person. And we're so just... Grateful for her openness and vulnerability. And we really hope that you all check out Unpeeled Journal and follow everything that she does because she's a beautiful writer and she writes very candidly about, um, you know, as she mentioned and we talked about in the episode, but um, the real experiences with loss. And, you know, that's what we're trying to do here on the show. And just there's all kinds of strange things that you experience in uh, the wake of a tragedy or really any kind of loss that you might have not anticipated. And it's good to know how the mourner and the griever is feeling, um, as someone who's not mourning and grieving alongside with them. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of find out where you guys find a happy medium and how to be helpful. And, you know, the reality is that sometimes you, you might bring something or do something that wasn't the right thing. And, and the person might have a reaction, but if you guys have a loving relationship, like you'll work it out. So, I feel like an effort is always a good idea. And if your effort isn't the right effort, I mean, try to think about it as much as you can first, but you can't always nail it in life on either side of, on that line. Um, So I just want to reiterate that if anybody um, is, I don't know, that's not even the right way to put it. If anybody's having a hard time, we're all having a hard time. Um, If you need anything, please reach out to us, you know, If you are in really deep despair, please contact a mental health professional. This is a time that um, we all need a little extra help. Uh, We obviously can't see our therapists one-on-one or see a new therapist if we need to, but a lot of people uh, in the therapy community, Bobby included, are seeing patients via Skype and via phone, and that is a great way to stay in contact with your therapist and not isolate um, because this is a time when... We're all feeling a lot, and it's important to stay connected with people who uh, have an investment in your well-being, whether that be a friend or family members or a mental health professional, a therapist, a psychiatrist. You know, whatever. Um, it can be easy to slip into some bad brain space, um, and you know, go down some paths in this thing. And I've found myself doing it myself. You know, um, and then. My kind of angle here is when I feel like I'm going into some murky waters uh, with my thoughts, I really try to just phone a friend, and if that friend doesn't pick up, I phone maybe some random person and not even to talk out what my murky thoughts are, um but just to like have some human contact because you know, in our normal life pre coronavirus, um we could be having a really like funky day and then you know, go for a walk and bump into a friend and chat with them or, you know, go sit at a restaurant and read a book and it changes your, you know, what's happening in your brain. And without the capacity to do that, we have a lot more time to just sit with our unpleasant feelings, which can be good and bad, right? Like I've found that I'm really working through some stuff that I've been not willing to confront for quite some time because I am forced to sit with my thoughts. Um, But when I see the thoughts taking a turn to a place where I don't think that they're, um, productive or useful to me, I try to reach out to someone. Um, and I hope that you guys do too. And there's also plenty of hotlines, um, available for all sorts of issues. If you don't have a therapist, if you feel like you can't call friends or family, um, and you can always write us a note and we're happy to talk to you, um, via email and, and share listener letters. Um, Also, I just want to mention that in many ways, um, what's happening now is a class war and that there are a lot of folks out there who have nothing before this and now have nothing minus a lot. Um, If you are someone who's listening, who is a person of privilege, who is not deeply affected by this crisis financially, um, has some extra time. Uh, has some extra money, uh, you know, use your power for good. Use your v- platform for good. Use your voice for good. Um, use your resources for good. There are so many people and so many organizations out there that need help. Um, the restaurant industry has been decimated. That's something that's close to my heart as I'm an industry person. And, you know, we record, uh, at Roberta's and Heritage is a food radio network. Um, There are obviously homeless shelters. There are blood banks. There are, I mean, the list goes on food banks. um, Find something that is meaningful to you and find a way to donate if you have money, um, even if it's only $5. Um, Undocumented people in this country are having an especially hard time. They cannot get government assistance. Um, We already uh, societally neglect undocumented folks. Um, prisons are overcrowded, and that has been a problem before coronavirus and now a huge issue as our prison population stands to get ill um, in the you know as this could you know spread through our prisons and will spread through our prison system. Um, so anyway, whatever the issue is for you um, please find a way to help if you can help and ask others to help and you know, are there people in your community are there, immunocompromised or old folks who shouldn't be leaving the house who could, you know, use a grocery delivery. Um, maybe someone who just needs a phone call. Um, honestly, a smile. If you are going out for necessary errands, like groceries and going to the pharmacy and stuff like that, or, you know, taking a solo quick walk around your neighborhood or a run, um, smiling at people actually really makes a difference. If that's all that you have to give, at this point, because you don't have extra resources, um, or extra time than just a, a good smile. Um, it just gives somebody else a little bit more power, I think, and, and a little bit more hope. And, you know, as difficult and horrifying as this is right now, in a lot of ways, um, I have hope. And I know that can be hard to hear because maybe you're not ready for it yet, you know, and I understand that very similarly to, When you're in grief, maybe you're not ready to think about it getting better because that's just beyond your scope at the moment, so that's okay, but I have hope. Um, I have moments of feeling hopeless, but I think my overarching feeling is hopeful. And um, I look forward to someday hugging my friends and family again. (laughs) Um, And I also look forward to seeing how this changes the world for the better. And I really hope it does. Um, and that it depends on how much we take out of this ourselves. It depends on what we really want to learn during this experience as a society and what we learn about ourselves in terms of how we want to change our own behaviors after this, you know, how we treat our earth, how we get involved in our community, how we get involved politically, how to protect people who need protection, who it's been now more clear than ever, do not have it. Um, how we want to, you know, lessen our, our carbon footprint. Um, you know, I hope that we learn something. I hope that we get closer and I'm excited and hopeful to see what that is, because I believe in people, even though I feel disappointed by certain social structures and, you know, things like that. I believe in human beings being mostly good. And I really, when I have moments of feeling hopeless about that. I remember that I believe in people, and that gives me the strength that I need to get through every day right now. So, we love you guys. Um, thank you to Lisa for joining us um, and being so open. That was really generous of you, and we loved chatting with you. Please check out Unpeeled Journal um, for some really great food content. Um, Lisa was kind enough to interview me on unpeeled and my, my interview is up there. We talk about processing and we love you guys and please be good to yourselves and good to each other. Okay. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us for processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that Processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at processing underscore podcast on Instagram. driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.